Welcome to the Ape Talks. As always, this is your host, Mr. Ape, and I hope you enjoy the 48th installment of me talking to someone else. So, Professor Bassam, what does it mean to you to capture a photo? Why do you think it is very important to capture such photos that you capture? Photography is something that is related to a moment, to an instant. And uh, often uh, people don't like this moment. Everybody wants to be ready when you want to take their picture, especially if I'm talking about portraits. Of course, photography has a lot of fields. If you are going into photojournalists, you don't need somebody you know, to be ready. You have to be ready as photographer to catch the right moment. Cartier-Bresson used to say, it's the right moment when you take the picture and then you have it. And I say, it's when you take the picture fast and you fix it on time. So those are two things. So you have to be ready and you have to be fast. What do you mean by fixing it exactly? You know, the exposure and, you know, like this is a technical thing. So the ISO and all those things. Yes, exactly. You know, shutter speed aperture, etc. But the most important thing is to be ready to catch the moment because the moment is so fast. And if you don't, then you're going to skip it. Mm. Like life. Life is so fast. And why do you think it's important to document things with photos, for example? You know, photography is history. Uh, I, believe, I believe in uh, relating, you know, telling stories with photography. Because the importance of photography is, when I say history, each picture should tell you something about an event, about a situation, about something. And when you see pictures, and I'm sure if you go back to your picture when you were a child, it's gonna make you remember a moment. Ah, this is where I was with my mom and I wanted an ice cream badly. Oh my God, you see? And she said, no ice cream today. You punished. Anyway, so just this is maybe making a joke, but when I look at old pictures, I try to remember, you know, those moments. Often I don't, but in the same time, I'm back and I try to create this moment, even if I don't remember it. And what do you think is the power of creating, of recreating those moments for you in the future? If I did not study architecture and photography, I would have been a cinema director. I mean, I love cinema. I'm a cinema eater. <laughs> I animated cineclips for more than 20 years. And in fact, I followed the Centre National du Cinéma when I was a student in back in time. And but unfortunately, in Lebanon, you know, we did not have a school of cinema and I had to study in Lebanon. So I chose architecture, which was a bit something that I loved. But in architecture, you have everything, you know, you have painting, you have sculpture, you have photography, you have art. But later on, I, I, I really did many small uh, videos or, uh, I mean, even my picture, when I take pictures, I take many pictures and it's a series. So if you put them together, it takes me back when Les Frères Lumière, the Brothers Lumière, uh, invented the cinema by taking many shots 
of one thing and then putting them together, then you can see it, it moves. Mm -hmm. And you now with the digital, you can see it. I mean, you know, you just put pictures together and then you go fast. And uh, you see that you are doing a movie. Right. We still. And, you know, now that we can capture video, and they already say one photo is like a thousand words. Mm -hmm. So you're capturing, I capture 24 FPS. I'm capturing 24,000 words a second, if mm. you look at it. You're fast. Yeah, you have to be. Like well, you said, you yes, have to be ready and fast. Excellent. But you see, uh, I would take one picture that could be the equivalent, you know, of those 24,000, if it's a powerful picture. You know, and like you say, one picture would tell you a whole story. And what do you think it is that... Uh, is so important about just one picture? What, what is the power of having such a powerful message communicated to you just by one single photo? What is life for you, you know? Life is what? It's a moment that you live now. And the picture is this present that you take. Because if you live in the past and you think in the future, you don't live. You skip it. The present is, I mean, now what I said became the past. Hmm. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, let me ask you another question. If you, if you look at it in some ways, you, you believe it's important to stay present in the moment. But at the same time, people, let's say, with mobile phones are always capturing everything constantly to the point where they can't immerse themselves in what's happening around them anymore. Uh. So, you know, where do you find the balance in that? It's a catastrophe. You know, like uh, I, when I see people, you know, every day I'm just taking their mobile and just trying to take a picture. And often it's a bad picture. You know, mobile photography is a bit like junk food. You know, it's it's uh, people think, you know, because they have a camera in the mobile, then, you know, they are photographers and they can take things. You always should think when you take a picture with anything digital, you should think analog. Analog means you are taking a picture with a negative that you don't see. So you better take your time to frame and take the picture. But what happened with the mobile, you just push the button and, and then you say, okay, I'm going to select the best one. By the way, I mean, I take a lot of pictures, but I never delete any. And you probably saw my interview on, uh, you know, TEDx LAU in 2016. And the title was Stop Deleting or Stop Using the Button, you know, uh, the Delete Button. Because you are eliminating a moment, an instant. Each picture is telling you a small story. And I, I refuse to eliminate any, even if it's a defect. Why not? A lot of my photography teachers all illustrate the point and just not taking a thousand photos, just take one that's good. Yeah. They always used to push this principle. And I understood it kind of, but not really to the root. Why, why, why is the root reason that all photography professors have ever had always have concluded on this point? Because you don't concentrate anymore. B but if you concentrate, then you are going to take the right picture. Now, even in the analog photography, you know, they invented the motor drive. And you can take like 10 to 11 pictures per second. I remember a very close friend of mine, Stavro. Stavro is a caricaturist, but he is also a photographer. And we, we worked together. We founded together the magazine Scoop in 1983. But Stavro, when he used to travel or take pictures anywhere, in his bag he had like at least 300 films. And when he takes pictures, he doesn't remove his finger before he finishes the 36 pictures <laughs> of the film. 
and then you know he will select you know the best picture for the magazine or for the cover and I used to take one picture and this is it well I mean this is the difference between two photographers okay I respect his way but my way was to concentrate wait for the right moment and push the trigger do you think when you do that where you take your time and you really concentrate taking the photo uh, not only does it make you produce a better product, but does it make you appreciate the hard work you went through of capturing that photo more? Of course. Adjusting all these little things. Yeah, I mean, uh, even with my mobile now, I use a lot my mobile, though I am a Leica user. You know, I have a Leica f uh, camera, but most of the time I work with my mobile, especially street photography, fast moment. Now, you will ask me, why do you know you use more the mobile? It's simple. When somebody sees you with a mobile, he thinks you're an amateur, so he doesn't react. But when they see me with my equipment, oh, are you LBC? I'm not, I'm not advertising any, but you see at one point, you know, when they saw people with big cameras, oh, LBC. And I used to say sometimes, yes, because it gave me the possibility to take pictures, not to be stopped, right? especially by some elements, you know. You know what I mean. Right. Yeah. But when I take with a mobile, I'm a, you know, this is a tourist. It's a, an amateur. And when I was in India, I was visiting professor in 2017 for three months in Kolkata. And I was in this, this uh, university, uh, one of the major cinema uh, institute in, in India. And I did books. I did exhibitions. I did exhibition on Kolkata. I did exhibition on Bangladesh. I was in Bangladesh, and you know, uh, and I did another one, uh, mobile art. So I do exhibition with it, and I remember my dean. I mean, you know, when he saw the pictures, he said, "You took this with Leica." I said, "No, I took them with my mobile, with my iPhone." He said, "Come on, you gotta be kidding." I said, "No, I'm not kidding." You know, I'm able to give you a very good quality with a mobile. It's a question of knowing how, you know, the techno, techno, you know, the technical aspects, etc. So, and uh, you know, you mentioned earlier how difficult it is to take to photograph people, especially uh, you know because there are so many different connotations with holding a professional DSLR camera. Yes. And uh, if you think about it from the past, from 200 years ago to today, how people have reacted having a camera pointed on them and where do you think that is heading in the future well i mean if you go back to the 19th century where you know the cameras at that point especially at the beginning you know there were large format studio cameras you know where you have to hide your head put the tripod put the camera prepare the person and notice everybody was serious you never see anybody smiling or you know giving no they've just still like this you know as if okay now i'm gonna be you know uh, in, in in photography you know like they're gonna take my picture and now when you take a picture of people it's more like say cheese <laughs> <laughs> you know like or you know like what i what i invented you know i, I didn't like this word cheese so i want to surprise and i want something nice so the sentence that i use and be ready to hear it. Do you love me? Huh. So when I say to somebody, man or women, you know, do you love me? I take more than one picture because the reaction 
I mean, I want the reaction to affect the person, but I want the after reaction. You know, the first one, it's more photojournalistic. The second one, when... <laughs> so, and this is when I push the second figure. Wow. Well, those are secrets, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for re revealing some of your secrets. Yeah. But uh, what, what, what do you think changed in the attitude? Is it just how easy photography became and it didn't become such a serious thing? That's why we changed our attitude to it? I told you, this is, a, you know, when I teach history of photography and I talk about, you know, how cameras were really so complicated, big, etc. And then suddenly George Eastman comes in 1888 with the Brownie Kodak, this small camera, you know, and the slogan was, just push the button and we will do the rest. I called it, you know, the McDonald of photography at that time because Americans are very good in, you know, having those uh, fast things. But it's nothing if you compare it to the mobile photography. Look, I was in a concert. I was in a... In, suddenly I see 1,000 mobiles, 1,000 lights, you know, up. Well, there are two things. You have the positive thing of it and you have the negative things. And the negative thing is they invade you, you know, by using this for any occasion. And I remember there was an accident on the highway in Byblos and this lady had an accident and she died in the car. And this guy passed by, stopped and took her picture dead with the mobile. And as stupid as he is, and you have so many stupid people, you know, just to be say, oh, I took the picture. He put it on Facebook. And her daughter, that didn't know that her mother passed away, somebody saw it on Facebook and they sent it to her. And she did, uh, you know, like she had a depression, she had a shock. This is bad. You know, I can take a picture, but you will never see it anywhere. Because as a photojournalist, yes, I have to take pictures of whatever thing happening. But I will never put it on, you know, any anywhere public. I respect the privacy of people, especially in those conditions, you know. Of course, you can take something nice. You know, I took a lot of people, love, you know, in those situations. And I was shocked, you know, like I really was really very mad about it. Yeah. So, yeah. That's very tragic how some people are like that. But yeah. I think the root reason people are like that or people sit, you could have a thousand cameras capturing the same thing at a concert. It's not mainly because they want to preserve this. Mm. I think the main reason is it's for social proof. It's to yeah, show to your show friends. I was there. Right. Exactly. And this I learned it from uh, Stavro. You know, when we had this magazine, I never had my picture anywhere. I don't take my picture, you know, like I travel to places where nobody goes. And he said, Bassam, Please take a picture of yourself in front of a monument so people, you know, know that you were there because they are going to say, oh, you know, they are stealing pictures from uh, other magazines. And this is when I began taking my picture somewhere, you know, at least a couple of pictures, one horizontal, one vertical for the layout, just to show that, uh, you know, I was in China, that I was in Japan, that I was in, 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 in whatever, you know, in the South Pole, etc. Do you think in the future, uh, what do you think is the greatest risk to photography since you have so much experience in life and in photography, over 60 years in photography? What do you think is the greatest risk to this genre in the future? The risk is you take pictures of certain elements, certain events, and it's dangerous. So now I'm going to go into 
one thing that happened to me. This was during the 1990 war. I had to go out to bring a medicine for my father from my cousin that lives on the other side of the street. On my way back, I was uh, a witness of a murder. Some people, you know, killed somebody from the army. I was looking at it. I had no camera, nothing. I was just passing by. But I was looking at this person alive and then dead. I never saw somebody dead. Went back home, I was feeling bad. And a few days later, somebody calls me, Sebastian, did you take picture of the guy? I said, no, no, I just did not take picture. And some people were insisting because I was known as a photographer. Everybody knows me. I covered a lot of things, but that time I did not. You know, like I was just passing by. Now, this is dangerous. Like, imagine I took pictures of this, you know. And there is a risk here. You know, you could die for that. Many photographers died because they took pictures of things that would implicate, you know, those people. But still, this is a part of my experience in life. In fact, I was kidnapped more than one time, you know, like uh, also from, uh, because I used to write about villages. During the war, I used to go everywhere. I didn't have any, any psychosis about any area. Beka, north, south, uh, whatever. I used to go everywhere. But, you know, I had this problem and somebody, you know, thought I was a spy. You know, when they see a camera, immediately this is a spy. But anyway, so those are the risks when you are, especially when you are a photo reporter. But now with the mobile, it's more risky because you can be somewhere, you have your mobile and something happens in front of you and you take a picture. It's what happened to Floyd, George Floyd in the US. You know, some, they stayed there and took uh, videos and they saw what happened and they implicate, you know, the police. Let's say something is happening to me in the middle of the street and mm. there are studies that show the more people around you, the less likely anyone is to do anything about yes, it. Yes, exactly. So, you know, let's say something is happening to me or to someone I love in the middle of the street and you just have a circle of people filming and no one helping, you know. And, and uh, this is bad. Right. This, mm. this is the dystopian future I tend to picture. Um, well, this is one of the negative things about mobile photography. Like you see people just, you know, uh, we used to say Japanese take a lot of pictures because in the past, you know, right. uh, you see them in Europe, you see them up everywhere, immediately. Tick, 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 tick. And I remember I was in Italy in 1974 and I saw this Japanese following me everywhere that I go to add to the hostels. So at one point the guy say, OK, I have a room, but, you know, for two. So I looked back, I looked at him, I said, would you like to share the room with me? So he was doing this. I said, yes, yes, okay. So youngsters, you know. And, you know, we shared uh, the room. And uh, so we went together outside at night. Then the second day, I said, today, we're going to visit San Marco. I did my studies in architecture, in history of architecture, you know. So I was so ex uh, enthusiastic and exciting to see the details inside. So I was looking slowly about, you know, those uh, mosaics in the church. I don't know if you've been to Venice, but this basilic is fantastic. And uh, I saw him <laughs> took pictures with this camera all around very quickly and then back to the door. I took him, you know, with his shirt said, stop, now follow me. I'm going to explain to you every detail. He was not very happy, <laughs> but I did it. <laughs> so just to, to show you a bit, now it's even worse. 
Now, just they go, they take picture, but they don't see anything. Everything is seen in the picture. And me in the picture. Before, there was no selfie. They used to ask me to take pictures. Please take us a picture. Please take a picture of me. And I said, oh my God. Now, it's all selfies, you know. I in front of uh, Tour Eiffel. I in front of uh, Colosseo, etc., etc. So, and you can see it anyway um, on, on social medias and everywhere. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing with the reason a lot of the, these Japanese or Chinese tourists mm. like to do that is because when they go back home, they want to show to their family, "Look at me here." Yeah. It's the same concept as social. Yeah, proof. but I mean, when you show the the monument, you know, you're showing the monument, but it's you. You are in the picture because yeah, well, you took the picture. Exactly. Their objective is not to capture the monument. Yeah. It's it's the proof, you know. Yeah. The same yeah. reason that uh, your friend in the magazine told you you need to take a photo of yourself. Yeah, I mean, uh, it. I mean, every single corner, every single. Come on, I mean, you know, you take one picture of yourself somewhere, but I mean, you don't take all the pictures of yourself. What do you think is the mentality that changes someone from wanting to take many photos of themselves to wanting yeah, to capture it's, something? It's related to the character of you know the people. It's it's, it's they're completely different. Uh, we say in French, the uh, North people they are. Uh, Effacé, they are, you know, like, uh, they don't like to show. It's in the education. When they raise you, especially in the Scandinavian country, the father or the mother would tell the son or the daughter, you are nothing. You are nothing. Till you become something. If you come to our countries and to the East, yeah, you, from the day you're born. You, you you're are, born. you are a princess. Right. You are a king. <laughs> you are a snowflake. Yes, <laughs> you are. You are some, you know. Allah uh, uh, <laughs> This is, you know, I'm using this word in Arabic. So it's it's a mentality. So if we now here we're going into into sociology, into psychology, you know, uh, into into really uh, the mentalities of the people. And what do you think is the danger of Everyone telling you you're a beautiful, perfect snowflake and there's no one like you when you're a at a young age. What does that teach someone? I did not give my parents, you know, the possibility to tell me you are the best. I think it, it's me. You know, it's my character. It's, I, I was very much solitary, solitary, you know. I just had my life. I had my corner. I had my room. I had, you know, like I was a bit away. I didn't have friends. When I was... You know, a child when I was at school, I began having friends at the university. Believe it or not, I was, I, I loved nature. I used to go around, walk, you know, like bring some things like stones, uh, fossils, sometimes take some pictures because, I mean, you know, I had this old camera of my father, you know, as I, I can just take one, two pictures. But you know, do work at home, you know, painting, uh, uh, sculpture, uh, decoupage, wood. And imagine in my room, uh, I decided one day, you know, I found some green uh, porcelain. So I decided to draw the maps of the world, each country on it. And then I placed them all around my room. And I used to travel with this, you know, just every time it's one. And uh, well, and finally, this was a dream. And I'm a big dreamer. It, it affects you, you know, in a certain way. Uh, and still, I'm still a bit, you know, like, uh, I like to be on my own. But at the same time, 
you know, like I try to be very social, uh, like uh, I learned to be social. Well, it's definitely a skill sometimes we must acquire over time. Yeah. But uh, what, what do you think you learned all those years you spent alone? What do you think you learned about life and yourself? Well, you see, when you are alone, you concentrate, you know, you go back into your the inner space of yourself. When you are with people, you don't, you know, you're mm -hmm. lost with those people. You know, they don't let you think, you know, and uh, often when you are with people, you live for them, you don't live for yourself. But being alone, it makes you think. And when I, you know, I dream. When I'm awake, I dream. How does that work exactly? Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Especially during the COVID-19 thing. Yeah. <laughs> Believe me, I did not feel this COVID-19 95%. The only thing that affected me is I cannot travel. This is it. Yeah. And um, I did not feel any depression. Believe me, you know. But how do you dream exactly when you're on your own, when you're awake? What, what do you, you know, mean you exactly? just close your eyes and then you think of something you want to do. And then, you know, it's like doing a movie. You know, when you shoot the movie, it's, it's dreaming. What's, a, what's the movie? Is it, isn't it a dream? And then, you see, things are so dreamy. I mean, you know, imagine you, you, you jump from, I don't know how many floors, you're still alive. They shoot at you, you know, and then they don't hit you. It's, it's yeah, so... I, 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 you know, like I do movies when I dream. What do you think is the difference between a dream and a movie, really? I don't think there is a difference much, you know. But of course, when I dream, I try to dream something that I would like to do. I would like to be, you know, like then I dream, you know, like I would dream maybe of somebody that I like, but that I cannot have. So I try to have this person in my dream. You know, and to to see what would it be? How would I feel if I am with this person? Or how would this person react if, you know, we were together? Do you think it's dangerous to romanticize the future? No, 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 no. It's it's uh, dreaming is a part of, uh, you know, of of real life. Even if I if I don't dream when I'm awake, I dream when I'm sleeping. But often you don't remember your dreams. Unless it's in the morning, <laughs> because in the morning when you wake up and then you sleep again, then you have dreams when, and often they are nightmares. Yeah, I, I hate that. Do you think dreams have any particular meaning? Of course, because they are related to your life. So you dream of things you know, you see. You know? I can tell you something that happened to me. I was living in Montreal and my brother was living in Texas and it was... Uh, one year after he got married, and it was September 4, 1977. I was, I used to work at night, you know, evening shift, and I used to wake up a bit late. So it was 11 o'clock, and I was dreaming. In my dream, my brother did not have his hand. My brother was hiding his hand. I could not see his hand. It was hidden. And suddenly the phone rang in my dream and in reality. And I took the phone and it was my sister-in-law. And I said to her, just like, because, you know, it was between dream and reality. I say, Nanda, what happens to Ferris's hand? And she, you know, closed. And then she called me again. How did you know? I said, what, what happened? I mean, how did I know what? She said, Ferris had an accident and he had his right hand cut. 
and now he is at the hospital, they're trying to put it again, and it took nine hours of operation, you know, to put back his hand with two centimeters less. So I saw him, and we are very much related, and I believe in this. I believe that we have this relation, especially with somebody very close, and we are very close. So, you see, this is a dream. I saw in my dream something that happened. How can you explain that? If we can explain everything, you know, I, I, I did my, you know, I was doing my research on uh, voyeurism and parapsychology, the effect of the eyes on people. Uh, don't you feel sometimes you're walking and you feel like somebody is maybe looking at you or uh, you are at home and you feel is somebody, you know, you know, like you feel somebody's looking and you turn around and somebody is looking at you. I used to walk in Florence and look at people from a certain distance, at certain parts of them. I tried a lot, you know. It affected some of them to turn around and look at me. And I was looking at them. And I do it always. And I feel sometimes people, you know, they just turn. Or they put their hand on the place where you look for. It's like the sound and the vibrations, you know, some have stronger vibration than others. And this is why the indigenous people, especially those who live like in Amazonas or in uh, Australia, you know, on those aborigines, they have very powerful senses. You know, they feel things. They hear more. And I, I, I became like this because of an accident I had in 1995 Christmas. I had an accident, I was smashed by a truck and I lost my sight for a certain period. And since I feel my senses are becoming so more powerful, I see more, I hear more, I feel more, I smell more, and it makes my life miserable. Yeah, I feel bad. But at the same time, it gave me this power of seeing more than anybody else. And what, what do you think it is that makes us not want to sense more? Because we live in an awful world. What makes you say that exactly? Well, I mean, there is no respect of anything. And people, f they find this normal. And they live in it. We live in our garbage. We live in our... Uh, you know, imagine you throw the garbage in the street, you, you clean your house, but you throw it in the street and it's in front of your house. What do you think about this? I mean, this is, I mean, you, you go to the West, you go to Europe, you ask, you know, the streets are clean because, I mean, the street is a part of your house. I'm pissed off sometimes, you know. Sometimes I would like to stop this car. I'd love to be a policeman. Sometimes I say to myself, I should be a policeman and stop all those people. Some people don't have enough respect. And when you're around so many people that do something wrong, it makes it okay to do that wrong. It makes you feel that way at least. It does not make that thing particularly okay, but you get that sense of, oh, okay, everyone's doing it. It's okay for me to yeah, do it. Yeah, but this is the negative part. Right. Not because everybody is doing it that you should do it. So you are a sheep. Right. You but are most, a follower. But 99% of us are sheep in some ways. If oh. I look up quickly... Mm -hmm you would most likely look up too, just well, to see what's happening up, yeah. you know? My, my brother calls me the black sheep of the family, <laughs> so, yeah, well, I mean, uh, well, yeah, I, I, cannot, I cannot accept it, and uh, now this makes me feel uh, sad. 
uh, a part of, you know, though I'm, I'm a happy person, but you see, I have a part of myself, a small part, that makes me feel sad. So how do you fight the sheep inside you? I don't have it. I mean, I never had it. So I didn't have to fight it. I mean, I'm a scorpion. Okay, now, a scorpion is a bit very independent, you know, and very, you know, <clears throat> like you take risks. I always took risks in my life. But in the same time, I don't follow anybody, you see. I'm, you know, like I have my own way and people don't like me. They're afraid of me for that. Because why, why isn't he like us? I'm not married. They are married. I mean, he can have anybody, but I can have only my wife. I'm giving you examples, you know, how people think. But you should be happy because you have your wife. I mean, why did you get married? I mean, so it means you got married, not by love, but you got married because you wanted a child to continuity and then, you know, just you're not happy. No, I'd love to get married. I'd love to, you know, to get married with somebody I love and to have a child if I can. But, you know, by conviction, not because I want an heir. Well, human beings generally have this need to procreate. Yeah, okay. you know, procreate and for what? Well, it's, it's the same reason the mosquito procreates and lays eggs. I know, I know. This is, I mean, I need this just to see that I have an heir, but this is not going to stay. And I have an, I have an historical house. I have a heritage. I have a whole domain. And people think, come on, you should get married and have a child. Who is going to own this? So you see, it's materialistic, as if it should be one of my children that is going to own this. Right, that's the downside. But Yeah, not because, you know, I need a child, because I'd like to raise a child with a certain uh, education, etc. Well, which is the case, my, my brothers in the US, I mean, my, my family live in the US and they are married with Americans, they have children, but they think family, they, they don't care if, you know, they sell the house and buy another one, they don't care. Here, it's, it's uh, always, you know, the house, you should keep it for the family, who is going to have it, there is a continuity, etc., etc. Because you told me you see a lot of injustice on this planet. Yeah. And I was talking to someone very wise, just like yourself, a couple of days ago. And they told me that, how do you fix the world how, uh, if, with all these injustices? What's the most powerful thing you can do? He told me, you can have a child, you can raise that child in the way that would lead him towards making this world better. Yeah, but you see, I don't want to be negative. I don't want to be pessimistic. But the world is so materialistic. The world is uh, divided into north and south. Imagine a bit what is happening, you know. Uh, how many people are poor in the world, you know, and how many people they have a decent life. The world is going to end at one point if we continue like this, you know. But I mean, the money, I need the money. Who doesn't need the money? You know, I need the money to, to live. But I don't need to have a lot of money just for the power of the money. I mean, what's the difference between having one million dollar and one billion dollar. I can live with one thousand dollar and I can live with ten thousand dollars. I had only two hundred dollars in my pocket for one month. I'm assuming that wasn't in Japan. <laughs> no, it was in Italy and I managed to live. So, well, it's definitely much more interesting when you live 
closer to reality, closer mm-hmm. to how most people live. You you do get an interesting perspective on the world. Yeah. What did you think of Japan when you were when you were there? Oh, this is a very organized country. It's it's uh, the you know the community is important. Japan or Korea, North, South Korea, they have this slogan: "Together we can do it," and they did it. Look at the economical and industrial and technology. Those two countries, they are ruling the world, you know. But in the same time, you have a lot of suicide because they work so hard. At one point, you see, they don't live anymore. And when, you know, they finish working and they're taking the metro, you cannot pass, you cannot cross. It's like sheep. And suddenly there is nobody anymore. But in the same time, they have a, a very important culture. Though they were very closed till the uh, mid, uh, before the end of the 19th century, before the European came and the Dutch and, you know, etc., etc. So they began, and especially after the Second World War, you know, when they got, you know, those two cities bombed, uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they learned a lot. And uh, really, they behaved in a different way. But still, now the Japanese, uh, there is a movement. The youngsters are against completely this old uh, emperor, emperor, you know, emperor between brackets thing. You know, they are really crazy. They are cool. They, they, and look in. in I, I'm talking about Japan and Korea because look in in South Korea. You know, all those music and singers and they are very open, but they are the opposite of the Japanese. It's a bit like a Western way of uh, freedom. They have, I mean, I've been in South Korea two times, and I remember one time I was in the hotel, and I was looking at the swimming pool that is at the fifth floor, and I saw things uh, that you normally would never <laughs> see in, uh, you know, in Japan, or things uh, sharky, you know, like... Uh, sexual things etc you know just on the swimming pool in front of everybody what do you think makes a culture slowly open up now with the internet now with this uh, the world is one you know like you go on internet you go into those uh, sites you go into those applications and uh, just look at you know the stories in instagram or in facebook that would last one day yeah nobody wants things to to last you know it's you know when you are uh, having a relation you know and uh, you have an orgasm they're looking for an orgasm I like to call it this way what is the orgasm it's just a powerful moment that you feel at one point it's a fo- photograph you could say this is it it's, it's like a photograph so I compare it always to this it's a moment that you freeze and then this is it this is changing a lot, you know, the society, and they're becoming more and more influenced by each other. You feel a sense of intense reality mm-hmm. and kind of like, now what? You know, you just experience the highest dopamine explosion in your brain, and, mm-hmm. you know, you have this underwhelmed sensation. You know, yeah. like when you walk out of a beautiful movie of action, you have this feeling of, oh, why you, can't my life be like this? Yeah, you go out, and if it's a karate, when we used to look, uh, you know, watch a movie of uh, Bruce Lee, we used to go out, and, you know, we were a bunch of uh, youngsters, and we used to do this, ha, ah, ah, ha, ah. ha. So, you see, you are influenced by this, you know. Right. 
Now, this uh, orgasm thing, I always, I compared also the way of driving, the Lebanese way of driving, like you're driving on the highway and, you know, suddenly, okay, you want to cross somebody and, you know, like he doesn't want to let you, you know, like, uh, I mean, but you, you were driving slowly, okay, let me pass. And, you know, he, and then you do it and he is not happy. So he, do, he does his, all his best, he risks, etc. Ah, 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 ah. And then suddenly he puts the, uh, the you know, the, uh, the light, okay, on the right side, and he goes slowly to tell you, huh, you see, I can, you know, like, I'm faster, and I call this orgasm. Ah, ah. And then, okay, go. So this is the orgasm of the drivers who, you know, feels, okay, you know, I did it. Now I feel okay. I'm faster than him. Well, I, I never thought of an orgasm as a race before with another person. You know, I never looked at it that perspective. Well, try, try it and you'll see. You'll see I, I, I'm right about it. Why do they do, so they could pass. And if they don't, I mean, you know, so they're frustrated. Right. Uh, okay, yeah. uh, and suddenly, you know, they do it. And when they do it, they don't continue. No, it's finished. They have it. So they, ah. And what's amazing, you know, they put, you know, the, uh, the lights on the right side, uh, and they go slowly on the right side to tell you, huh, okay, I did it, so go. Why is this feeling so temporary, you know? In life, even in life, when, let's say, you get a million dollars, then you want 10 million. You know, when you get the million, it's like an orgasm, and then, oh, I need more. It's, we have this never-ending hunger. Where do you think that comes from? We are Phoenicians, you know. You know, we are traders. We, have, we, we deal with uh, business and money, etc. And uh, it's also because uh, it's, it's an outside facade. You see, we live in our car. You know, now, look, we have a crisis with the uh, gasoline, right? Okay, you have a hell of a traffic. Now you ask yourself, we are in the middle of this economic crisis, COVID-19, companies are closing their doors. Where are they going? We live in our car. We live in our car. And the car is a facade. So you, this is why you have a lot of Mercedes, BMW or uh, Audi uh, or, you know, Toyota's uh, Land Cruisers or Prado. You know, the car is a part of your facade. Well, something we've been hinting at this entire conversation is reputation and perspective. You know, as, if, as someone who's had to take photos, you know, whilst being extremely concentrated while doing this act for 60 years, where do you think this all originates from, this act of reputation, how people look at me, why I need to show this, and how does that make you feel after looking at all that? I, you know, if, if you're talking about me, uh, like I'm writing history. For me, photography is history, okay? Some people write, but if you write history, you can manipulate it. Most of the time, you know, you can write the history the way you want it. Each one has his own history. We don't have one book of history. But when you take pictures, normally, unless you manipulate the picture and, you know, I take your head and put it on somebody's... Well, but this is not, this is different. But what I do, I am writing history with photography. 
What is photography? Photography is writing with light. Photos, <laughs> graphos. I write with light. In the future, I hope my archives, you know, are going to be in a safe place with people that really would keep them and show them. It's going to show a certain period. And this is history. This is why now, you know, when you look at old pictures, they are showing you Paris, New York, London, you know, China, Beijing, etc. at that period. And you look at them with the nostalgia. And uh, I hope I will be able to have to begin doing my books, at least one, but I'm sure I am not going to be able to do it this year, you know, celebrating 60 years at the end of the year, because I don't have the means in dollars, you know, to print a book. And this is where, and, and I have the means in the bank. But in reality, you know, they are imprisoned in the bank. Well, <clears throat> I'm sure you could write the book to some degree uh, without publishing it. You could create something. No, no, I can have it, yes. I can have it already designed, etc. But there is, it's not only digital. Digital begins in 2006. So from 1961 to 2006, it's all negative and slides. Well, you could scan them all and put them... Okay, scanning means you need... Uh, it has to be, you know, like a professional scan. And professional scan, it, it costs a lot of money. Really? Okay. Drum scan, yeah. This is what I do when I, when I do my uh, books. I do... I scan with uh, a professional scanner. And it's a drum scan. It's like a tube of glass. It's not the flat scan. If I am going to do the digital one, yes, it's easy to have it uh, planned. Like I can have a whole design of it, but I cannot print it. As a photographer uh, who's a professor as well, when you do teach your students, what do you think is one of the most uh, the greatest misconceptions they tend to have upon photography? What does it take to get it, do you think? Concentrate. Listen. People don't listen. Now, some... You know, they get it. Some others, they just do the same mistake. People don't listen to each other. You know, they, just, they are away. And often people talk at the same time. Come on, listen. And I give them examples. I show them pictures. But of course, out of 15, if I have two or three that really got it, I'm very happy. Often, you know, my students, you know, they are serious. You know, they try their best but at the same time, they have a, a culture that is influencing. It's a much stronger than mine. You know, like, it's, it's the people around them, you know, like... Uh, yeah. And what is photography for them? Photography is me in the picture. Hmm. Me in the picture. And because my students, those are the social media students. Those are the Instagram. Do you think the future is only going to get more like this? Yeah, it is. Don't you think we're going to reach uh, a peak and then we're going to change? No, no, it's going to continue because um, uh, this is a trend, you know, and those youngsters, they follow the trend. Just look at the poses. I'm not going to show you the poses of girls, you know, how they do. Okay, the Kardashian things or etc. So, and and I, I, I do some remarks, you know, like tell them, I mean, yeah, but sir, this is a trend, you know, it's like to show like this, to show like that, etc. Yeah, I mean, it's much more powerful than what I can do. 
Well, as you said, it's a trend. Yes. So how can you be sure it's going to, it's, you know, trends are always changing. Yeah, they change, but not for the, uh, for, for the best, it's for the worst. I, I, I'm sorry to be a bit uh, pessimistic about <laughs> this, but those people are not professionals. And when I say professional, I'm not talking about those wedding photographers. I'm sorry. I mean, <laughs> What's wrong with wedding photographers? Oh my God, it's awful. <laughs> what do you mean? It's awful. Anyway. You know, uh, when I look at pictures taken by wedding photographers, I'm shocked. You know, I remember I was the best man of my nephew. He asked me to be his best man. I said, but come on, put my brother, you know, you know, I'd like to take pictures of you. He said, no, I want you to be my best man. So they selected photographers. <laughs> they took thousand, two thousand, three thousand pictures. I was not able to select six pictures, six though I had to fix them, manipulate them to put them in the magazine because they wanted to put, you know, you know, I'm one, I'm, I'm also a prestige uh, magazine founder, you know, with Marcel Nadim, uh, the owner. Uh, and, you know, I'm, so I put one page uh, in the magazine for them. You know, it's like a gift. The way I, t I t uh, not just tend to look at wedding photographers, but life in general, you know, um, yes, life is hard and it's difficult and it's unfair and it's rough. Mm. There are always these peaks of prosperity and then these declines and then these peaks and declines and yep. everything is like a, a trading table. It's, exactly. It's always fluctuating. Yep. And sometimes, especially in, in a person's life, there are periods that are more difficult than the others. And we're always going to have these difficulties. But in the end of the day, there's always going to be some something positive to look at, something nice that's worth taking a photo of, mm -hmm. something worth smiling at. And with that in mind, let's all try and uh, take a photo every now and then and just appreciate the concentration we put in that work. And with that being said, Mr. Rape, signing off. Mm -hmm.